0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Now, as it is the first episode, you must be wondering, well, what is Outside In? Well, if you've ever felt like an outsider, this one's for you because it's here we celebrate inspiring leaders, CEOs, pioneers in music and sport from different backgrounds and cultures that have embraced their differences and made it to the top. I'll take you behind the scenes so you can see what makes them who they are and how they got there. In today's episode, we have inspiring chef, restaurateur, and author, Asma Khan. Hello, Asma.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me on this. This is uh, exciting.
0: I'm actually thrilled given that this is an unproven concept right now, and it's a testament to your strength of character that you're here. So it's an absolute privilege. I want you to take us back to your early years uh, because you've advocated for other people throughout your whole career. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and where this drive to redress inequalities in society comes from?
1: I think the real credit for this should go to my mother. Um, She was one of five daughters. I think that she was made to feel she failed when she delivered me the second daughter. And everybody was like, oh, you know, you're definitely going to have a boy. And then lo and behold, it was me. She was disappointed. But I think that was just the pressure of everybody but she really made an effort after that. And I really understood this when my brother was born because she never celebrated his birth, which is a very, you know, in our families, you know, when a boy is born, there's a huge amount of drama. Sweets are given out to everyone. Huge proclamation cards. Obviously, you know, this is, you know, before all the technology right now, you just make an announcement on social media that child is here and even put up a picture. But at that time, you know, you did it in a traditional way. You hand wrote cards and send it around to neighbors and friends, and relatives, of course. And she didn't do it. And I remember standing on the street just outside my house after my brother came home. And neighbors would come to me and tell me, oh, did you have a sister? I said, no, I had a brother. But they didn't believe me. They didn't believe me because they had got no sweets. They had not got the announcement that a boy was born. And I realized that this is something unusual. I was only, I was just le- less than four years old but I did realize that this was something really unusual. And from then on, I realized that my mother made a huge effort not to discriminate between me and my sister and me and my brother. And my sister was a bigger challenge because that's when really the very ugly side of our society kicks in because she was very fair, very slim, very pretty, very graceful. She was everything I was not. And We were constantly being called the pretty girl and the ugly girl, the fat girl, the dark girl. So I was being constantly being called the fat, dark girl. And, you know, people worried about who would marry me because I was just so ugly. And my mother was just unbelievable. She took them on in a very beautiful way where she would speak with so much dignity. And she talked about equality and fairness and how damaging it is to discriminate.
0: I didn't fully understand what she was saying, but it
1: sounded good.
0: Give me just, a, just a, f- a feeling of kind of the perception outside of your family, you being the second daughter and your mum, you know, facing this oh, initial disappointment or whatever you call it when yeah. you were born.
1: It was very hard. I think even harder for her because mm-hmm. she was one of five girls. She was the middle daughter. Mm-hmm. She was the darkest of all. And I think that... She never talks about what she went through, but she must know what it feels like when society looks at you like, oh God, you know, your poor parents. And I think she really twisted that around and would always tell me, just ignore everybody who tells everything. She said, "I, you're going to go set the world on fire. And she is the one who would always tell me, there's going to be a day when everyone's going to know who you are and whose child you are, whose daughter you are. And this was so powerful when you're six, seven, eight, and your mother tells you this, that you're going to become someone incredible, and you're going to bring honor to the clan, not just the family, to the clan. I come from a royal family. Here, clans matter. And she made me feel invincible. And I think that that is really a game changer, because it didn't mean that I felt I was an insider. Never. I I was never anyone's favorite not my grandparents, on both sides. They always saw me as trouble, rebellious and not attractive. And this was a big problem because basically I felt unloved by the rest of the family. The person who really loved me were my parents and my siblings. And that was good enough. And I realized that what you need is not the confirmation, the adulation. You know, you don't need all of that from the greater world. If you are very, very powerful, they have no choice but to accept who you are. And it's a hard lesson when you're very young. But with my mother literally standing next to me, being my anchor, I could tide over these storms of, you know, constantly being mocked, uh, ridiculed, bullied, pushed around, left out. Uh, All of that, every time I fell, I got up stronger. I felt... You know, this was
0: not my destiny to lose. Do you think you got your rebellious nature from your mother?
1: Yes, yes, I did. I mean, I only really realised when I was writing, you know, the, the book, uh, Ammo, the cookbook over the pandemic. Mm-hmm. When I started writing about her, I realised, oh, my God, I'm writing about myself because this is what she is. I absolutely, till that point, had not made the connection. Somehow you always think your mother is someone disconnected from you even though she gave you birth and I never imagined that this was I am where I am and I am who I am because of her it took me uh, writing the book to actually make that realization that I was like her
0: I love this book by the way I've re- I read it and I had a connection and like an emotional connection to this just purely because of the title because I'm Middle Eastern right Arabic Amu means mother yes so, well, it's more than a cookbook, right? It's a collection of your memories yeah. and you growing up as well. Yes. And your evolution as a chef. Yes. Know? So let's, let's touch on that because it's worth mentioning. Uh, how did that book come to be? Well, I always had this book in me.
1: Exactly the same reason why you're doing this podcast. There is, I think in a lot of us, a desire to put the spotlight on our parents because for us, we feel they were uncelebrated and no one really knew what they did. Also, because of the time in which they lived, whether they their failures and their successes were not highlighted the way that today, you know, you, know, you, you do a dance on TikTok and you're suddenly world famous. It takes very little to get publicity. I mean, ironically, of course, it's a very full stage. Yeah. But, you know, our parents, very different time that they lived. So I wanted to tell her story. But when COVID hit, I realized that this is a book I'm going to write first because this should not become a memoir. Friends of, you know, my own school friend passed away from COVID. I lost members of my family. Three gentlemen I was very close to all passed away within 40 days from COVID. So it was real. It wasn't just a kind of, this is what I'm reading in the news. This is what I'm seeing in my family WhatsApp chat. People being so ill. It frightened me, and I wrote this book literally in one go. All the text has been written like a novel. I wrote them all at night because I remember my father, you know, very, very Sufi in his outlook, very philosophical person, would always tell me this, that when you are struggling, you must sit and watch the dawn break. Mm-hmm. Light will always break through dark, and night and day, they will follow each other. I mean, there's this reference to the Quran as well, but it was a very powerful idea for me that I needed to see light breaking through the dark. I needed to know that the darkness was not endless. Of course, I lost everything as a restauranter. Many people lost everything, but it was tougher in hospitality because we didn't know what was going to happen to us. We didn't have the option of working from home. Yeah. yeah. That was it. You know, we we had to go to work and We were told that we cannot be near people. Yeah, and also I think that this book is, there's a thread of fear in this book. But the biggest thing is about a celebration of resilience and hope and a celebration of how you can actually shake the world gently. My mother was incredible. You know, for that time, they didn't even send her to college. She was a mother at 18. She was a grandmother at 32.
0: She was also... An entrepreneur herself, yeah. quite unconventionally for that time.
1: And, you know, so she didn't go to college. No one in the family worked. She set up this business. She used to come back at three in the morning, sitting on the top of an empty biryani, huge pot. And inside that pot were all the bones for the, all the street dogs. The chaos. She used to come back at three in the morning, jump off this truck where she was sitting on top of the biryani pot, in her silk sari and her diamonds. And the neighbors' lights would all come on. No one dared gossip about her because she was so powerful. She radiated power, but she radiated compassion and the politics of equality and of holding everyone's hand and the community and never, ever, you know, keeping quiet, even if it would damage her. She spoke up. She spoke up for, you know, I used to be terrified when women in the slums behind our house got abandoned by their husband, that night she had to sell herself. How would she feed her kids? And my mother would then get a message. She would go into this very stressful environment and she would tell everybody, hold this woman's hand and say, tomorrow she's my cook. If anyone goes near her, touches her, they deal with me. And the next morning, this woman would be in our, she didn't even bloody know how to cook half the time. With her snotty kids running around, we hated it. Suddenly, you know, the outside, there are like five kids. I said, my mother, why are you doing this? She said, you'll not understand. You need to publicly go there and protect women so everyone knows there is a fear that I will turn up and I will stand by these women. And I used to just like think she was completely mad.
0: Now I get it. I get it. I love the power of your mother and the strength of your mother. I had this similar experience when my dad, some of my parents came over to the UK very young, they were students, they had four kids. My dad never really planned to stay in the UK. So he was like, right, we're going to go back home, bring your belongings. We're going to travel up to London. We were in a VW polo at the time, all six of us. And um, he'd had a job lined up. We were going to stay with our grandfather for a month. And it transpired that there was no job back in Jordan. This is where I'm from, right? My grandfather said, look, you can't stay with us. It's just impossible for you to stay with us. So At that time, literally all we had was our belongings. There was no job. There was no place to live. We were literally homeless. And what happened next was my mum literally phoned everyone that she knew. And fortunately, she found all of our friends that lived in Exeter. And so we stayed for several months with them for some time before the council found us a place to live. That is the power of mothers, right? Yeah.
1: They believe. uh, They believe and they're driven by something so magical and this is why you know the last chapter in this book on Ammu is me as Ammu because I also now understand that now I am becoming her and I have you know a 22 year old and a 17 year old you know London born kids so different from me Mm -hmm. yet there is that bond
0: with food and that's you know what holds us all together can you tell me about the time that you kind of presented this book to your mother I was very, very fortunate.
1: I have to say my publishers are incredible because when I first tripped back home, you know, after the, all the restrictions were lifted, the book was not anywhere near coming out, but they managed to get me a copy. And I presented to her and she was so respectful, which, you know, in our culture is very complicated. Mm-hmm. As Muslims, we do not bow down to anything. We only do that which is when we pray, put our head down and that's, you know, to God. And we don't have this whole idea of saluting, of bowing, of touching people's feet, which you have in India. Mm-hmm. People touch feet. We don't, because for us, salam is salam at a distance. There's no bending down. But my mother received this book by bending down to me and acknowledging, and she said, You did bring honor. This was so unexpected. It was deeply moving and very, very emotional. Because She didn't think that it belittled her to bow down to me, to take this book with the respect that she felt this book required. This is her greatness. But this is also what should be in all of us, I realize, that it should never be your ego and your arrogance that holds you back from acknowledging the contribution of others. And I do this with my team and my mother by acknowledging that I had brought honor to her, that I had told her story and I had made, in some ways, I had brought justice, not just to myself. I know what she meant to her. The fact that she was always the one, the marginalised, the outsider, the othered, the unloved.
0: She was not loved by her parents. She made a huge effort with me. I want to pick up on that theme of outsider. I want you to transport us back to when you were 22 and you first moved to the UK. You know, when I was living in, and I grew up, I was like, let's say, your son's. Grew up in the in the UK, but it was just six of us. Our extended family is living in Jordan. We felt very disconnected. You've just been married. You're 22. You come to England. Uh, can you explain to us what that felt like? Was it lonely, or do you feel homesick? What was that like?
1: It was horrible. Uh, it was like hell. You know, in the Quran they describe hell as you know burning, you know fire, and people being cooked in pots. And no, no, hell is Cambridge in winter, in January. Try looking at Cambridge. I had not in my life not imagined this kind of gold. And much later I discovered that we didn't have heating in the flat where, where we, we were living. Because my husband was admissions tutor and graduate tutor that year because he was, he was a, a Don and um, a fellow at a college at Cambridge. And he was given this flat, which was, you know, very nice. It was technically outside college because the rule is if you're married, you can no longer live in college if you're a fellow. So this was outside college. Didn't have any heating. The first time we went out to see somebody, I was telling him, hey, there's a hot box. You know, there's heat coming out of the box. And my husband kept saying, shh, 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 keep quiet, keep quiet. I didn't understand. I was like, whoa, there's heat coming out of here. (laughs) I don't know what a radiator is supposed to be. How am I supposed to know? I'm from Calcutta. Whole bloody place is like a sauna. I've never seen a radiator in my life. And it was so bad. You know, like if the tap was dripping in the morning, it was frozen. There was frozen. The whole sink was frozen with water. It was so cold. I could not imagine this could be any place where human beings should live. And I don't know anybody. In Cambridge, if you're not a student and you're not an academic, you're nobody. Mm-hmm. And then I lived in college and my husband taught in the flat. It was part of the college study. He told me, don't bring anyone back. Don't make friends with any student because I'm a professional. This is my job. So I was so scared, you know. Of course, you know, I didn't know how anything works in this country. So he told me, don't bring any people back because they might be a student. They may be, they know his students. He said, don't make friends with anyone and don't bring them back. So that's it. I had no friends, nobody. And it was miserable. And it was so, it felt uprooting because this is a different time. You know, now you can Skype your dog in Delhi. You want to chat to your dog, call (laughs) your dog. But at that time, you had to write letters. There was no phone. There was no mobile. It was very expensive to call home. Plus, you know, the phones didn't always work in Calcutta. So, you know, you might sit a whole of Sunday trying to call home and it would not connect because phone lines were very unreliable. And then you end up talking to the whole family and, you know, the neighbor too, whenever you call for three minutes. I don't know why everybody turned up in the room. I never really got to speak to Ammu. I couldn't tell her that I was so unhappy till I eventually met her. So it was really quite a, a shock. And I think that, you know, it may sound dramatic and over the, you know, over the top for people who are listening to me. But this was a different time. This is 30 years ago. You got no ingredients anywhere to cook. Not that I knew how to cook, but you got nothing. Very, very different world. And I remember, I mean, must have been a year after I moved to Cambridge, people on the street stopped me and said, they've got ginger, fresh ginger in Sainsbury's. There was a big handwritten cardboard thing saying, exotic vegetable, and then he not write it was ginger. And English people were asking me, what is this? And I was like, you know, it's ginger, I couldn't believe it. And there was of course no WhatsApp or anything. So then I bought my ginger and I went around the streets in Cambridge showing it to Asian students. People were jumping off their bike I said, where did you get this from? Because <laughs> suddenly we got ginger in city centre. You know, it's hard to imagine. You can get the most obscure ingredient now in any random place in London. And, you know, of course, outside London, not that great, but you do get everything and you get everything online. There you got nothing. So it was this kind of mad, crazy existence.
0: So so, what role did cooking really play if at the time you you went into your cooking? Or you were into your cooking, but you weren't necessarily a trained cook at that time. Take us back to like the very start.
1: Well, I mean, I have really found it difficult. The food was really awful food in college was diabolical my husband was a terrible cook i couldn't cook it was a terrible situation so i thought fine i'm going to have to learn to cook and this is how i'm going to survive and this is also how i'm going to save my marriage because there's no way i'm going to live with this guy who can't cook and is killing me with terrible food <laughs> and i i had to go i thought thought i had to go back and my mother said there's no option you cannot come back it's too much of a scandal She told me, is there anything wrong with him? I said, no, he's a very nice guy, very liberal, very chilled out. He just can't cook. He can't cook, he can't feed me. And she was like, you know, but that's not good enough reason. Just now learn. So I went back and I learned to cook. And actually, it's not that I didn't know how to cook. It's that I hadn't cooked myself. Mm -hmm. But I spent my entire childhood in the kitchen. So I was immersed in the aromas, the sounds, the instructions my mother was giving the cooks. So I actually knew what was going on with every dish. And so literally, very, very quickly, like I learned to make biryani first time round, first shot. I mean, how? I've never made it in my life. But I've stood there watching it being done so many times that I did know, but I just hadn't done it myself.
0: I want you to take us to when it really started to pick up for you with the supper clubs. Can you, can you tell us how it started?
1: I did the supper clubs because I really wanted to cook, but... Ten years ago, when you looked around, you saw no one who looked like me mm-hmm. in food media, in restaurants, anywhere. There was Madhur Jaffrey and then nobody. So how could I think I could even ever become a restaurateur or get into hospitality? My home was where I started from. Because someone told me that there are this idea of a what they call then a secret supper club. Why didn't you do it? I thought this makes sense. You know, I've got enough, you know, plates and glasses and space. I'm very lucky I inherited the house where I live. We could never in our lives afford that. So it was a beautiful Georgian massive flat in South Kensington. I had the space. I had the kitchen. I had the you know I could seat 40 people for dinner. and so that's what I did. I ended up doing that as a way of just fulfilling my desire to cook, but also to I know that when I managed to eat my own food, it healed me. And it didn't matter which culture you came from. People would sit there and say, I felt I went home. Mm -hmm. They were in my house. They were sitting on my dining table. They were eating from the tableware I got in my trousseau and the silverware that I got when I got married. Yes, they will feel they went home because in all those little touches, they felt a sense of connection.
0: there's, There's something about just a gathering of people together enjoying food that just brings people together and it's that unity I think is just a really fantastic aspect of what you do did you also find that you know you got connections and you got these personal connections and friends through doing the supper clubs just going back to the fact that you you mentioned earlier that you were kind of out on your own you didn't know people your husband was saying don't converse with you know my colleagues these sorts of things so did you find that as a way of being able to connect with people and make new friends and, and make new connections?
1: Yes, of course. I mean, for me, this was, this was a game changer because mm-hmm. I made lots of friends. Slight problem was I had to do this behind my husband's back and he didn't know about this. But then everybody who came to the restaurant, I mean, sorry, to the supper club knew that. That if they ever, ever met my husband anywhere, never, ever mentioned to him that you ate in a study. I mean, my mushtaq would have freaked out. (laughs) And he's a very, very private, very intellectual, introverted person. He's very thing about privacy and his private space. And you can imagine, I mean, 40 people eating in his house. I mean, this would just have killed him. So they knew that. So they really were people not at all part of his circle of people. I made sure that they didn't turn up. Lots of new people, almost all of them, Immigrants to this country, and so in that eclectic mix of people, Mm -hmm. there was a kind of celebration of the fact that they were all Londoners, but they all had found different roots. I just want to
0: touch on that actually, because you, you know you made it a point actually to find immigrant women and to train them up. Is that the influence that you get from your parents who encouraged you perhaps to? you know, help others who are less privileged than you?
1: I don't know. I I I can always make up an answer for that. I don't know how it happened. It's not that I planned, and I can say this now. so easily. How, do you,
0: how did you find them?
1: Uh, yeah, because there were nannies in the school where my kids went. And I just began literally so organically. I said, oh, come to my house. Because I lived opposite the school. This was a primary school. They were all working for French families as live-in nannies. And I knew on Sunday they all booted out because Sunday they... They spend Sunday on the streets, you know, see them. I see them on the street. Mm -hmm. I see them sitting in the park. And when it's raining, they're sitting under staircases because they have nowhere to go. They don't have a rented place. And they would just gather in groups and sit. And I thought, come to my house. Come and gather in my house. You know, I'll put on, you know, Indian television. I'll feed you samosas and chai. Let me look after you because I realized that these are lost. They are like me. There's nothing different between me and them. Mm -hmm. And I must, as a responsibility, I must look after them because who will take care of them? So this is how it all began. So I wasn't looking for chefs. I wasn't looking for cooks. I was looking for nothing. And the idea of the supper club had nothing to do with them. I told them that tomorrow I'm cooking. Don't come. And come later on and eat the food. So they said, are you crazy? You're cooking. We'll come and help you. And so they turned up. And most of them didn't know how to make anything that I was making. But they cut the you know onions, which is like the worst job in the whole universe. <laughs> and then they washed the pots and they sat and ate all the leftovers and they took them home and then they kept asking where's the next supper club because this for them was just a celebration like this woman was saying oh my god you know I felt I'd gone back to my town I'd gone back to my village you know I felt I was cooking for my family it was a very emotional reaction because this is the one thing in your culture my culture most cultures Italian French Spanish all these big agrarian societies which today You still have this gathering of the matriarchs, gathering of women, you know, around Christmas or Easter, Eid and Eid and Ramadan, you know, you have these people where they get together and they cook. They cook a traditional thing. They sing a rhythm in those kitchens, which goes back centuries when women got together and cooked together. And this is what I replicated Mm -hmm. without thinking it through. It just happened. And then we just became closer and more of a collective. And that's when the dream began. There was no intention to do anything apart from just occasionally calling people to the house and cooking.
0: So I'd, I'd like to carry it forward after the supper clubs. You moved into a location off Carnaby Street, Kingley Court, yes. I believe. How did that come to be?
1: Well, I mean, I, I had to move out after a while. I mean, not because my husband found out, but my kids were protesting a lot. hmm because they spent the entire weekend trapped in one side of the house, because they hated all these people, you know, in the house. And they complained to my family, you know, they said that they were unhappy. And I realized it's not fair on them. This is their house, you know, I can't, Mm -hmm. you know, destroy it for them. at every weekend, you know, when my husband's away. So I moved to the first offer I got, which was a pub in Soho. Very, very trendy. Everyone looked like aging rock stars, you know, lots of Harley Davidsons outside. And Very, very trendy. And I was very unsuccessful. I failed completely. I moved there and there were days when I sold nothing. Why do you think that is? At that time, this is like, you know, five, six years ago, no one had Indian food in restaurants, Mm. in pubs. The idea of a pop-up didn't exist then. Now we find this is normal. You're having a pop-up here and a pop-up there. There was no question. Every chef's, you know, kitchen was their kind of empire. You didn't step in there. And they were pubs where they were doing Thai food in some places in London. No one did Indian food. So when they found out I was Indian food, they said, oh no, no, we don't want your curry love, which was very disheartening. But the food was you know, obviously good because some people came back. And then I had this review with Faye Mashler who came on her 70th birthday. Someone told her, you want to eat proper Indian food, go there because this is the food of your childhood. She grew up in India. And then she wrote this incredible review which I had no idea was happening, and suddenly, like the whole world turned up, including all these guys who were saying no curry love stood for two hours for a table. And I realized then that this is, you know, your kismet. Mm-hmm. Kismet opens doors to you, and then you all you have to do is walk through it. And my life changed, and I was very successful after that in the pub. But one of the one of the regulars was the landlord of kingley Court who when I told him that I was closing and leaving because my son had not been doing his geography notes for his GCSE. I'm Indian mother. I mean, I had to go home. This boy's not going to fail his geography because he's just so lazy, he didn't make any notes. So he was like, you know, how can you go? This is not how your story ends. I said, yes, it does. Because first of all, I'm Ammu. Then I have everything else. And he told me, fine, go do his geography notes. But when his geography notes are done, come back, I'm going to show you a site. And I went to see the site out of politeness because he was so nice and he used to always tip the staff. Nice, decent, sweet man. I thought, you know, why not? You know, he's from the very beginning world's people who always ate. You know, when I was so unsuccessful, he didn't just come because he read about me. He would eat all along. But when I walked in, I suddenly felt it hit me really hard that this can be it. We can change the whole narrative of how home cooks are seen. This can be the first restaurant with an all-female kitchen and have home cooks or housewives cooking because the reality on the ground is in every home you go to in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Nepal, you will find a woman cooking or a woman in charge. But the moment you're looking at middle-level, top-end restaurants in the East or in the West, it's men cooking. Our food is only good enough if it's free. You will not pay a cheque at the end of a meal made by a woman.
0: And this I was going
1: to change. That's why this restaurant became very important. And I'm really lucky that I could open it.
0: You opened the restaurant, Darjeeling Express, in Covent Garden in 2020. And while you were there, you described yourself as being the ultimate outsider because it is an area for rarefied European cuisine. If I've got that quote right.
1: Yes, no, that's true.
0: I said that. Yeah.
1: And it's it's absolutely true because the the whole reason why I got that place, which I have, by the way, now lost because my lease was terminated by the landlord, was because of the pandemic. I had to wait for male chefs to fail. I had to wait for the chessboard to be cleared in the pandemic, with so many people lost out. Restaurants were closing, chefs were falling out with their owners. There was carnage. That's when I stepped in and I spoke to this landlord. And I said, you are going to reset the chessboard. But I just want to tell you, I'm coming back as queen. I'm going to take (laughs) your biggest site. I'm going to take your flagship restaurant. You're going to give it to me because you're going to rise above your pious of self-selecting white people because you're white. What needs to change
0: in the restaurant industry?
1: Everything. It's not acceptable I'm telling you this as a lawyer, the amount of touching without consent and violence, sexual violence, harassment and racism that happens in kitchens, happen outside the kitchen, the head chef would be in jail. But it is excused.
0: Because of the culture within it.
1: Because of the culture. Mm -hmm. And to be able to physically burn someone, hit them, violate their body in many ways because you are stressed out and you are angry. The whole explanation is, this is a lot of pressure. Get the hell out of the kitchen. You can't deal with the stress. I can tell you 10 yoga places you can go to India and chill out. <laughs> if you cannot deal with the heat of the kitchen, you should not be in the kitchen. How are you justifying violence against women on the basis that you're under pressure? And you know, If people who came for three years when we had the open kitchen in Kingly Court, you see nine women, everyone was laughing and singing. When the whole restaurant was packed, at the height, you know, at eight o'clock, every you know restaurant will understand this. It's the worst time because you're trying to ten- turn tables. Those mm-hmm. people who came at six need to get out at eight fifteen. A whole lot of new people are coming. If you're slow, you're crush, crush, crush. You've got to get it out. You've got to get out. There's a lot of pressure. You wouldn't see any of the women shouting at each other. And we had a feng shui uh, master who was there. And he's, you know, he just was one of the guests. He stood there and decided he was going to tell the whole restaurant Mm -hmm. his theory on on the rhythm and the beat. He said, you guys are just seeing people cook. And he was describing how the movement works. It was fascinating. (laughs) He's just a guest. And he explained to us how these nine women were moving in a very tight space, you know, not touching each other, not leaning over. This whole idea that your space is sacred. This is our great Shakti, the female energy. You feel that radiating out of my kitchen. So this is the way we cook traditionally. And in every culture, you have this, whether it's Native Americans or it is any kind of other tribes, you know, indigenous people. The idea that you get around the fire and you cook and you feed, there's always going to be a beat. Doesn't necessarily have to be a drum, but it's there. You hear it. You feel it. And this is what you feel in my kitchen.
0: So so what's next? What's next for you? Because the restaurant is closed at the moment. So what, what are you currently working on?
1: Well, it's a very difficult space right now because the 35 people are out of jobs. Mm-hmm. So I need to think of what to do. But I am also very close to finding a deal for a new restaurant space. So I'm optimistic. And I think the world is always big enough to embrace someone like me because Even though I'm at the very fringe, I'm an outsider and I'm the heckler outside because I always criticize, you know, the culture, toxic culture, very testosterone driven in kitchens. There's no space for this. There's no space for this. But I even being a complete outsider, you cannot ignore me. I am part of your universe. You may want to ignore me and you may want to hate me. You may think what I'm doing is wrong. And you may think I'm causing trouble everywhere where I go. Yeah, too bad. How sad. But I ain't going anywhere. I will stay on the fringe. I will be the outsider. But I will change in my lifetime how women are seen in my industry. That is going to happen.
0: I hope it does. And uh, who is making you the outsider? Like who specifically?
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, that I mean, you'll understand this. And, you know, everybody else will. No one has to tell you, oh, you don't belong here. You go and stand in the corner. Unfortunately, it happened to me a lot when I was in school. I was very naughty. I was made to stand with a dunce cap. But <laughs> it's not that that someone makes you stand in the corner of the class with a dunce cap. They say, oh, you are the outsider. You don't fit in. You're the, you know You're the one that no one wants to be friends with. No one has to say it. It's an emotion of being the outsider. And many of us operate at the very core, the heart of organizations. Yet we are outsiders. I know when I walk into a room, I recently went to the 50 best restaurants in the world. I met lots of people who knew who I was, who knew my story. They are the biggest chefs from around the world. But they'd all seen, either seen Netflix or they knew who I was and seen something else. They all came and spoke to me very affectionately. So if anyone was looking from the outside, you know, when I walked in, you know, the Rocker brothers who are like superstars, I did a little bit of filming them. They queued up and they clapped when I came in because they were like, you know, it's so nice to see you. This is not how you treat an outsider. But these are superficial to some extent, but these are also important and people do make an effort to make you feel like you belong. But deep inside, I am always going to be the outsider. There is, unfortunately now, no land that I feel I belong to. I'm always going to be a traveller. I'm always going to be disconnected. I will travel from places to places and will never find a place where I can feel truly I belong. This is my curse, but it's also a privilege because that means I can go to places and try and make a difference. This
0: is only possible because I'm an outsider. You've done a lot of work to advocate for others and I'd like to talk about the Second Daughters Fund. Can you tell me your decision behind uh, starting up that charity?
1: It completely makes sense for me to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use my platform to raise uncomfortable issues. And I want to highlight the injustice and the damage that this kind of lamenting of the birth of girls does to the girls. It doesn't just damage the girl because it's not that someone's going to sit down and tell me, oh, everyone was so unhappy when you were born. They don't do that. But you pick it up along the way. But I also think it's also very damaging for us in South Asia because the young boys who are in the house immediately feel superior to the girls. And they will go out thinking they're the masters of their lives. And a woman has to fit in. You know, everyone cried when my sister was born. So obviously they're not as good. There's also this thing that I think that these are have far, you know, deeper ramifications. The amount of sexual violence against women in India, the rapes, the fact that consent doesn't matter, it all feeds into this whole idea that we are the lesser being. Where is all this starting? Where is the problem? The problem is in the families. And I know that I cannot go into families and talk about this because this is a very private emotion. Most people don't do it consciously. So it's very simple. I mean, my charity... when any of the women who work for me in their villages, a girl is born, a second girl, we organize to send sweets and firecrackers, which is set off, obviously. You send out crackers to someone, fireworks, they'll send it off. And so much sweets that they have no choice but to distribute it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot of sweets, you know, otherwise one family cannot eat it. So they are kind of forced into doing a celebration. But it is important because when I was being bullied and pushed against the wall and stones were thrown to me and... I was told that my whole family lamented my birth, that I was unloved and unwanted, mostly by boys who were bullying me. I didn't have anything to say. I couldn't tell them that, no, there was a celebration, that your family got sweets. My family was very happy when I was born. I want to make sure that some girl has that ability to hit back when she is made to feel so unwanted, so unloved. And it's symbolic, but it's just that, It kind of makes people aware that, oh, you know, why don't we do this when a girl is born? You know, oh, in that family, they had a girl. And look at them. They're acting like as if it was a boy. We sent clothes for the mother, who's feeling, I know, low, because everyone has made her feel that she's failed. She delivered a live child, kept the child in the womb for nine months. Such a huge achievement. You know, all these people who are commenting on her, half of them cannot even give birth. The men. How are you commenting on this woman's huge achievement of delivering a child? And I personally know lots of people who, for whatever reason, not had children. You know, this is a personal thing. You know, you make this into a family lamenting opportunity. It's disgraceful. You should be grateful there is life. But so really it's trying to change conversations within families and hoping that the next generation will be brave and speak up.
0: For your 50th birthday, you visited a refugee camp in Iraq and set up a cafe staffed by female survivors. I'd love to hear more about that experience.
1: It was just a crazy idea because, you know, there are no cafes in refugee camps for obvious reasons because there's no money. Mm-hmm. People are just, you know, managing to live an existence. But I I went to an event where I sat next to Taban, who is the founder of the Lotus Flower and she does a lot of work with the Yazidi. She herself is a genocide survivor. And her father survived massive chemical poisoning attack by Saddam Hussein. So she has this kind of huge legacy. And this is probably why she's accepted in the Yazidi community, because they understand that she went through this as well. And she understands what it is, because they are very suspicious. They've always been marginalized. They've always been separated. A community that's always been othered. And suddenly they went through this huge trauma. And she worked with them. And she was telling me about them and telling me that, Every day, all these young girls who are survivors of enslavement by ISIS go to the camp gate and wait for their mothers to come back. Their mothers are not going to come back. They're gone because it's been months and now years. And the, only, the camp has these young girls who managed to escape and older women and older men. And there's a disconnect between them because, of course, the shame is always yours in our communities in this Eastern tradition, if something went wrong and something happened to you, they blame you, not necessarily this right. faceless person who you know, captured you. So there was no communication between the older people and the younger people. And I said, you know, why don't we open a cafe? Because she was telling me that the Canadian government was giving them a stipend. So this was the first thing I realized that there's money. There's money they can spend in the cafe. This becomes now economically viable. It's not just a charity. This is an absolute way of empowering these women. But when I went there initially and I spoke to this gathering of women, no one put their hand up when I said, I've come here to sell a cafe. I need volunteers who can cook. I had to turn around and tell them, you're still in chains. You're still in cages being sold in bazaars. You cannot walk free because he still holds you. You will only be free when you actually step out, out of your comfort zone, And of that grieving dark space where you are, set the world on fire. Get out. And all the hands started going up. And that's how we set it up. But we hit a huge barrier. The moment we got these girls together, they don't know how to cook Yazidi food. This is also the great irony. Because many of them were captured at a very young age. They hadn't learned to cook. The men who captured them told them their food was dirty. They were dirty. They had to learn to cook the food of the foreign fighters of whose wives they were, or wives or slaves. And when every time one of them died, they were sold again. They were put in a cage and stripped and put out in the bazaar and someone would buy them. And their food had to be made for them. Eventually, we've managed to get the older women in the camp to come in because they didn't want to be part of this. They were watching us and they kept telling us how stupid we were and we're making mistakes and all the dumplings were opening up because we were using the wrong things we had these girls had no idea that's the biggest transformation when they stepped into the kitchen all these older women who had looked down on these girls sat down next to them and started rolling out the dumplings oh it was just incredible feeling the great sense of victory i saw the eyes of these girls this is how their journey started the cafe is still going on it's still very successful we do keep having problems with the cafe the tent keeps flying off (laughs) in winter it was a very bad winter Snow came down and brought the whole place down. Luckily, someone donated money and we could put the tent back up. It's just a small little tent. You the kitchen and we're, we're hoping to be able to get more ovens because now the girls say that, you know, they miss the birthday cake. They're saying it's our birthday, but we feel it's not our birthday. We don't know. We want to make it a cake for our child. And I don't have, I mean, at that time, didn't have the money to do ovens. But this is the thing that we'll move on to. We'll get ovens so that they can make baked cakes, baked bread. Give them back their life. Using food as a way of empowering them is, I think, the only way because what they've gone through, they probably will never heal. It's not just the physical scars and the tears that they carry on their body. It's the trauma and feeling uprooted because they're never going to go back to their ancestral lands. That's the thing because many of those lands were taken over by who they felt had betrayed them they're never gonna go back to the mountains again. They all talk about it, but they are gonna be permanently displaced, I think. So at least by cooking the food of their mothers who are no longer there and of their grandmothers, they can find a way to kind of connect back to who they are.
0: What advice would you give to young women trying to break into the world of food and restaurants?
1: I think you need allies, men and women. This is not about us and them. I know that I've always portrayed as this person with the female kitchen and talking about women empowerment and female hospitality. My greatest allies have been men. I think it's very, very important to understand you need to be able to have a network of people you can rely on because you will never be part of that core, the inner core, the insider. So imagine you're going to be the outsider, but the outsider with a nucleus of power, people around you. Talk to people and you'll be surprised the number of people you think are powerful or important or well-known who will be happy to give advice. People are generous. You know, do not think that, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm so unusual. I reply to 100 emails a day. I give advice to people. I talk to them because I know that it may give strength to that person for that one moment. Like I tell them, I, if I think it's a good idea, I say, yeah, this is a good idea. You should try it. You know, do this or do that. It is so important to talk to people because you are in your bubble. You're in your echo chamber. You're sitting there. You're talking to yourself. This is a difficulty of being an entrepreneur, a food entrepreneur. You're completely stuck on your own. And everybody doesn't want to discuss because people have this paranoia that, oh, they'll steal my idea. No one's going to steal your idea. Talk to people. Get their ideas. Share your fears. Learn from other people's mistakes because you don't have to do this on your own.
0: That's so true. I mean... I've been an entrepreneur for about 11 years and uh, always find it rather strange when you have companies that are like secretly, you know, working on a business idea when what they could be doing is growing their network. As you were saying, gaining advice from others, getting a mentor and then going out there and doing it. So that's really, really great advice. I just like to finish off with one other question, Asma. How would you like to be remembered in years to come?
1: I think I would like to be remembered as a disruptor because I have tried to change things around me, not by kind of, you know, setting fire to everything. There are ways of of creating change and revolution. I guess inspired by Ammu, I'm going to live that dream that I had and show you that this can be you. And in my lifetime, I will live to see women surpass me in hospitality. I want to stand on the side and applaud them. So I'm disrupting the rhythm of what has been going on for so long so that I'm clearing the spaces for everyone else to
0: come through. Do you believe in leaving a legacy? Then?
1: Yes, I think, I think all of us should. I think all of us should. If you leave a life where it's all about money, there are no pockets in your shroud. You know, I just need to be able to afford what we call Doga Zameen, which is the land on which I will be buried. I will go back empty-handed. My legacy will not be my wealth that I build up and the cars I drive and the house that I bought. It's completely irrelevant. It is the fact that people will be able to name you in a room full of people when they're pitching for a restaurant site. When someone goes in and tells someone, you remember there was this person, this is her name, this is who she was, this is what she achieved, I'm going to be better than her. That is going to be my legacy. I want women to be empowered enough to walk into a room and own it because they know there is someone whose name they can put out there who did the same thing.
0: I mean, listeners can be inspired by that. I know that I am. And that is a lovely way to finish this podcast episode. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much. You're so inspirational, Asma. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you very much.